This was, this was reminding me of David dancing before the Lord with all of his might. But if there is a day to rejoice, can you imagine what it was like on that first, first Sunday worship where the, where the uh, disciples had just endured one of the most miserable moments, watching the one who had walked on water, watching the one who had fed the thousands, watching the one who had healed the, the blind, watching the one who was innocent be crucified. When they put him down into that grave, they sometimes call Good Friday good. It wasn't for Jesus or for anybody there until Sunday. Silent Saturday probably felt like an eternity. And finally Sunday came. And Jesus had told them that he was going to be able to not only, uh, as the scripture said, to throw, to, the temple was going to be thrown down, but in three days he would restore it. And they mocked him about it. But when they didn't realize until Jesus rose, that he was talking about the temple of his body, that on the third day he rose. Uh, welcome to New Covenant. I'm so glad you're here. Glad you got to meet somebody. If you could bring the word cloud up, I want to be able to remind you that we are a, we want to be known for basically one thing, that we're a Bible-believing church, okay? And like I said, there's a spectrum of worship here, but when you come, you're going to find that the gospel is center. That's why we started off with that video that said, we want to communicate the gospel by our words, by our deeds, and with our passions, so that the wonders of God's grace in Christ might be known. So we are Christ-centered, and then you'll see that. And all the other things about being multi-generational, missional, friendly, uh, reformed, and covenantal, regional, all that stuff, it all kind of flows out of the fact that Jesus is here, and he changes us. And I pray that if you would like to be a part of it, you can read through the bulletin, see some announcements. But we're going to reverently attend to the public reading of God's inerrant, inspired word. If you'll open your Bibles or if, if you might want to follow along what's behind, uh, we're going to be looking at a text in Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. Uh, today, the front picture of the bulletin shows about a covenant that was ratified. And I was, you know, our church name is called New Covenant. Many people don't even understand, well, what's a covenant? You might know about a little covenant because if you got married and you got one of those things on your, make sure I got the right finger, uh, you got your wedding band, uh, that, that is a form of a covenant. You enter into a relationship, a bond. But the covenant that we're going to be talking about today is the covenant that God entered into with mankind, uh, with, the, with the children of, of believers, I mean, basically his children with believers. And we'll be looking at that in a moment. If you would, uh, let's look at first, as I said, Hebrews chapter 13. Uh, Hebrews 13, if, you, if you're familiar with the book, uh, Hebrews was written to the people who knew the Old Testament. They knew all about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. They knew all the different characters. Um, most folks that grew up in a, with a Jewish background were familiar with these things. Uh, the author in the New Testament of Hebrews writes it to the Jewish community. He writes it to people who, who knew these connections. He wraps it up in chapter 13 with the two verses I'm looking at today in chapter uh, 13, verse 20 and 21. This is God's word. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the, good, or the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, some of you might say, well, that's maybe a good text for Easter Sunday, for Resurrection Sunday, because there's some excitement in it. There's some zeal. Let me reread it to you. This is after he has written already 13 chapters. 
He's been reviewing the whole Old Testament, showing how Jesus is better and better and better and better. And when he finally is wrapping things up with this doxology, hear it again. Verse 20. Now, now. It's almost like he's exhaling. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, Jesus being the great shepherd of the sheep, God of peace brought Jesus from the dead by the blood of this eternal covenant. And then verse 21, he says, that God who is at peace may do this for you, equip you with everything good that you may do his will. And secondly, working in us that which is well-pleasing or which is pleasing in his sight and all of this through Jesus Jesus Christ, the anointed one, to whom this God should receive glory forever. And then he says, amen. Which is what I was trying to teach you, that when we agree with these prayers, you join in. And that's what we're, our response is to be to this wonderful doxology. Let me pray for God's blessing on it. Oh, Lord, as we gather, I pray that you might give us a clear understanding of why this author, I believe the Apostle Paul, wants us to be able to say, amen. In Jesus' name I give thanks. Amen. So there is this weird thing. What do you preach on on uh, Resurrection Sunday? Well, obviously you should preach on the resurrection. And if, if, if a pastor knew the Bible, of course he should be turning to 1 Corinthians 15 and make sure that everybody understands what resurrection is. Well, it's true. I have been just so puzzled because this author, this guy who knows all sorts of the Old Testament, includes the covenant in his discussion about the resurrection. And I don't think many people here would even see the connection. So I'm hoping that you'll be able to follow along if you have one of these fourth point supplements. They're on the tall standing table there or in the hallway when you come in. You can pick one up as you leave. But just a way of keeping notes, I've got uh, four things I want to show you about this covenant. And, and first of all, I want to show you it's in there. So in verse 20, he talks about the God of peace who brought again uh, from the dead, our Lord Jesus. Now, could you help me and just use your, your, your skill as an expositor? Uh, what's another word that you might use here for bringing somebody again from the dead? Oh, man, you are sharp. Of course, the resurrection. I mean, isn't it fascinating here that even at the end of this text, he's talking about, hey, this God brought about this resurrection of the body of the body of Jesus, the literal body. So in a sense, he's referring to Resurrection Sunday. And so in a sense, whoa, this is very apropos to us. And then he goes on to say about the great shepherd of the sheep. Now, who's the great shepherd of the sheep? Okay, hmm. Well, if you had known your Old Testament, uh, and as I was at, uh, at Sight and Sound yesterday watching King David uh, and his Psalms, what Psalm tells us about the great shepherd? Psalm 23. Some of you know these words. You've heard them at many funerals. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in need or I shall not want any other. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. And then he leads me in the path of righteousness for his namesake. And when I go through this life with the journeys through the hills and the valleys, including the valley of the shadow of death, I don't have to fear because who's with me? Who has the rod and the staff? The shepherd. The Lord is shepherding me through my life. 
And so you can see that the person that's writing this book is drawing from this beautiful theme that even Jesus picked up on in John 10, where he said, and that's why you were right, he is the good shepherd. And the good shepherd does what? He lays down his life for his sheep. How did he do that? Did he fight the lion? Did he fight the, the, the wolves? No, when you realize what he laid down his life on Calvary's cross, he had to lay down his life to the Father because what Jesus had to save us from was not from some kind of sickness or some kind of uh, concern. It was the curse that God the Father was going to bring justice upon. His wrath was coming on us, except Jesus said, I'll take it for you. It's a beautiful thing when you realize that on Resurrection Sunday, we have affirmation that the price was received. That on the cross, he said, I did it, it's done, to Telestai. But then on, on Resurrection Sunday, we know that God the Father's wrath is no longer being poured out. No longer. And if you go to Romans chapter 5 and Romans chapter 8, you'll find that, that there is no more condemnation for them that are in Christ. No more wrath of God will be poured out on you if you're in Christ. There is a peace that passes understanding. Now, there's, I want to unpack this text for you, and there's four key things I want you to see. On your fourth point, you'll see it here. Notice the calming description of our God. On this Resurrection Sunday, notice how he wraps things up with a calming description. Then secondly, we're going to be amazed. I want you to notice how he describes uh, the amazing activity of this God who is at peace. It, it sometimes might surprise you. But then the third point, which is when the answer to my question in my heart, notice the surprising motivation of the triune God. Why did he do it? And then there'll be the application there. Notice the loving application that God does. Because of what's been done, it changes our world. It changes your life. It changes mine. I want to quickly walk this through with you. Uh, when you first open your Bible there in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20, notice how it describes God. Uh, if you have your Bibles there, you can see now, may the God of, may the God of peace. Now, when you go to the original language there, you could say the God who is peace or the God who is at peace or the God who wields peace. You can find out the word peace a lot of other places in scripture, even on the armor uh, that you're supposed to put on in Ephesians 6. There's peace. Now, Jesus walked around after the resurrection and he kept saying, peace I give to you peace. It's pretty interesting that the idea of this word irene in the Greek, it is, it is applied to our God. What a description. Romans 1.17 gives us another picture. The wrath of God is being poured out on all unrighteousness. That's one of the key verses if you read the book of Romans. David, or, or Paul there, when he's writing to the believers up in Rome, he says, I'm not ashamed of God. I'm not ashamed that he's called me to be a minister. I'm not ashamed of the gospel that I get to talk about. But the wrath of God is being poured out, and that's why i got to share this good news. And then in chapter 10, he says, how beautiful are the feet of them that bring it. It's really a wonderful thing. But I have to tell you that in Hebrews, it's kind of interesting. If you turn back a chapter to chapter 12, uh, verse 29, you're going to see that the author of Hebrews there clearly has said, for our God is what? Can you look at there? How many of you want to warm up to the consuming fire? 
Because he doesn't just say this is a warming fire that makes you feel like you get a nice glow. This is the previous chapter. I mean, we're in chapter 13. This is the end of chapter 12. And if you back it up, you'll see it a little bit more in verse 28. Uh, he says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that can't be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship and reverence and with all. For our God is a consuming fire. He is awesome. But he is a scary thing. I think C.S. Lewis said it really well in the Chronicles of Narnia. He says, uh, he describes the lion there, who is the picture of Jesus, Aslan. And he says, Aslan is not safe. Because God is going to punish sin. It's really interesting that you only will warm up to God if your sins are taken care of. Otherwise, you can be sure that your sins will find you out. Exodus 34, 7 tells us about our God is that he will by no means clear those who are guilty. So it's very interesting in this description that at the end he says, notice this calming description, the God of peace. What has happened? Why is he calm now? And I find it quite interesting. If you go back to chapter 12, verse 21, you're going to end up seeing this explanation. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight to Moses that he trembled with fear. But you have come to Mount Sinai and to the city of the living of God and the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable angels in festal gathering, to an assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus. This is verse 24 I wanted you to see. The mediator of this new covenant. To the sprinkled blood that now speaks a better word than even the blood of Abel. And when I look here, I find how something happened. God the Father is recognizing, is being recognized as the God who is at peace. He is satisfied. The, the, uh, the biblical term or the theological term we like to throw in there, he's propitiated. Now, that almost sounds like a curse word. Propitiation means that, that all of the debt is paid. He's satisfied. You know, because the wages of your sin is death, Romans chapter 6, but the gift of God is eternal life. And the reason why God can now give you a gift instead of giving you the cursed punishment is that he is satisfied. The price has been paid in full. And Ephesians 1 ends up bringing the same thing. Something has happened. Jesus has paid it all. Now, notice, secondly, this, uh, the amazing activity of this God of peace. Now that he's satisfied, you just have to say, hmm, he's satisfied, now what? You know, he's not wanting anything more. He's not in need of anything. God is at peace. Sometimes the, the, the uh, commercial people did a good job of, of saying about Calgon. You know, all of you know that if I say, Calgon, take me away. And, of course, what are they talking about? that you would get this quiet, soothing bath where nobody is going to bother you. No phones ringing, no kids crying. You don't have to prepare this and you don't have to go there. You just chill. Or maybe you just soak. God is at peace. And yet, even at peace, he does something, an activity that is rather amazing. What is it that he does? And if you, if you open your Bibles there to chapter 12 or chapter 13, verse 20, the amazing activity that he engages here is that he brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. I had a tough time with this because I thought, why, don't he, why doesn't he just say he resurrected him? 
And if you go to the Greek, it just says that he brings him back. He, he, he is engaged. Our God at peace, our triune God, does something amazing. He brings Jesus back to this world. Most of us would have probably been like Peter. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is, is praying so intensely, already beginning to bear in his body the, the sin of the world, our sin. And, and the Roman soldiers are coming, are they actually the soldiers that are coming from Caiaphas? And when they get there, Peter is, is pretty indignant. He's like, ah, no way, you're not taking Jesus. And he pulls out his little stave and he even swipes off the ear of one of the guys. It's pretty amazing that Peter had some gumption that he was going to do something rather than just be a passive person. But what really is amazing, Jesus said, stop. What I'm going to do is going to be far greater significant. Jesus is going to die, yes, but he's going to be raised. And if you go to some of the other passages of Scripture, you can see it in, in uh, I think I have it in John chapter 10, verse 18. You realize that Jesus knew this all along. He says, and you can read it right there, no one can take my life, but I lay it down of my own accord. It's according to my will. I have authority to lay it down, and I also have the authority to take it up again. On this Resurrection Sunday, we realize that the triune God was at peace. The price had been paid, and now Jesus could rise from the dead. It just, I almost just want to stop there and say, isn't that amazing? Who has the power to rise from the dead? Who has the power to take life back? Third point is notice the surprising motivation. So we have this resurrection taking place because God is now at peace because of Calvary's payment. And now look at what, he, what, what happens, the motivation behind all this. Why did God have to do this? And of course, all of us know it's a four-letter word, L-O-V-E. For God so loved people in this world like you and I that he did it all. But the author of Hebrews doesn't quite say it like John chapter 3. If you look with me, this is what puzzled me when I took, while we have this text today. But by the blood of the eternal covenant. The blood of the eternal covenant. As I mentioned to you at the beginning, most of us don't know what a covenant is. You know, we liken it to maybe a marriage ceremony or something like that. We might be wise enough to connect it to vows that you take. Uh, and there's certain things that like when you put your hand on the Bible like I did when I was sworn in as a witness for the church, which incidentally, we didn't win that law lawsuit. But when I swore our hand in the bio, on our Bible, the, uh, the thing that came out was, so help me God, I'm going to tell the truth. When you enter into a covenant, there's a deal that has been made. And that's why when you see this phrase, by the blood of the eternal covenant, there has been a deal that he's referring to. There has been an agreement, a contract. And many of us are unaware of it. So let me quickly review it for you. I, could, I have to take you back to the Old Testament to be able to, and I'm, I would take way too long to read everything, so I can just highlight a few things for it. Uh, God entered into a covenant with the first man and first woman. It was called the covenant of works. God entered into a deal, and those two people, Adam and Eve, they were holy and happy. They were a great-looking couple. Sometimes I wonder if they, uh, what they really did look like. Were they tall and skinny or short and stout? You know, what, what color was, what fair complexion did they have? Did they have a lot of hair and not much? You know, they were the perfect ones made in God's image. It doesn't really matter about the appearance. As we learned yesterday, the Lord looks on the heart, not on the outward. 
And that's why I'm preaching to your hearts today. The motivation behind this is this, the blood of this covenant. Now you're saying, boy, this is a little strange. Why does the covenant require blood? Because as it explains, the covenant of works was God made Adam and Eve and he said, Adam and Eve, if you do this, you'll live. What a great deal. It's a great deal. It's almost like the same thing we do to our children. Do this and everything will be okay. You know, you can give them the car keys and you can trust that they're going to do what's right. But if they don't do it, guess what happens? They don't get the car keys or they don't get the wallet or they don't get the credit card or they don't get their freedom or whatever else. There's always consequences. Well, Adam and Eve broke the covenant of works when they ate the forbidden fruit. They, they were tricked into thinking that they'd rather be more like God than being at peace with God. And so when they broke the covenant, the bond, the relationship that was sweet, the communion that they had, when they broke it, then God's wrath had to be poured out on them. And then the covenant of works had to be met in a different way. And that's why you guys know it was explained a little bit to Moses. Uh, it was explained to Noah a little bit. It was explained to David and to Jeremiah. There's a lot more explanation of the covenant. But if you hear these words from, Genesis, or from Exodus 12, when, when the people of God were going to be taken out of Egypt, he says, when I see the blood, then my wrath won't come on you. See, this is part of the bond in blood or the covenantal blood. They had to kill the animal and put it on the doorpost of their home. Because when God said, when I see the blood, that means judgment already has come. It's been poured out on that sheep or that lamb. It's been poured out on that animal. And it may be very sad to realize that the animal had to die. But if they didn't have the blood on the doorpost, guess who died? The firstborn of every family. And God was even being gracious there because every sin deserved hell. Every sin deserved death. And so when God only was saying to the Egyptians and to the Hebrews, he was saying, I'm only going to take the first one. I'm going to be gracious. But boy, there was a cry over Egypt. Everybody that didn't have the blood of the covenant on their door, they were weeping. Their firstborn was gone. Now, do you understand the blood of the covenant? There had to be blood poured out. And if I had been a preacher in the Old Testament, I probably would be messy with my hands. I'm glad I'm not in the Old Testament. Because when you came to church, you had to bring your offering. You had to bring your lamb. You had to bring all these sacrifices. And Hebrews brings it all together. But he says Jesus was the final sacrifice because Jesus had the blood that never had to be repeated. And you understand it in, I guess it's in chapter 10, uh, where it says the blood of uh, Hebrews 10, verse 4. It says the blood of bulls and goats, they'll never satisfy. That's not the blood of the covenant. The blood of the covenant was Christ's precious blood. He was the lamb without blemish. Nobody was like him. No one was worthy but Jesus. And that's why it's interesting that he described Jesus as the great shepherd of the sheep, but he also is the lamb of God. And the blood of the lamb of God had to be spilt. And when you see this surprising motivation, it's because the blood had just been spilt. The blood of the covenant the covenant that has eternal ramifications. Because that blood has already been poured out. Jesus didn't waste his life. He didn't go on the cross and say, I hope some of you come become Christians. It was because he shed his blood that you would be saved. That you wouldn't have to pay for your own sins because he paid it already. That's why Genesis 12 gives us the picture of Abraham. 
And Abraham was called out of Ur. And, and you can read about that in chapter 12. And he left everything. He trusted God. He gets there in chapter 15, which is part of our core text. You can read it on your own. But God confirmed the covenant all the way back there. Abraham, smart guy. He understood God. But, but the covenant was going to be a bond, like a marriage ceremony. And God says, Abraham, go to sleep. He put him to sleep. You can read about it in the text, chapter 15. He says, because Abraham, you can't make this deal. You can't keep my terms. In order for you to get to heaven, Abraham, you'd have to be perfect. And I'm going to have to supply someone in your place. He puts Jesus, he puts Abraham to sleep, and then he himself passes through the parts of the animal that says, this is what will happen if the, in order for the covenant to remain in effect. And that's what we have, the blood of the eternal covenant I want to finish with, because of this great motivation, the love that Jesus had to take him to the cross. Remember, the nails didn't hold him there. His love for you and me did. Until the wrath of God was satisfied and he was at peace. The text goes on to finish in this, in this beautiful thing. He says in verse 21, and this is the, notice the loving applications. There are two of them. So that we can equip you with everything good and also that God would, if you look at there, that he would work in us. So part of it is equipping you and then he's working in you. So what's the difference between equipping you and working in you? Well, I liken it this way. On the one way, on the one side, equipping you is giving you opportunity and giving you abilities, giving you talent, giving you eyes to see. In other words, it's, it's the outward. And then the other part is God is working inside of you. You see, while we're still here on this earth, before our resurrection, or you know, we don't have to go through the resurrection, we can actually be translated. You can read that in 1, Timothy, or 1 Corinthians 15. But if we're going to die, we're going to have to be raised with Christ. Uh, the scripture is saying that he, he gives us, he equips us to do what needs to be done. He gives you everything you need to do it. You really believe that? Once you know what he's called you to do, yes, he will give you what you need. The opportunity, sometimes he has to bring you down and humble you to be more effective. Sometimes he has to provide the money and the resources. Sometimes he has to give you a, somebody to kick you in the butt so that you'll get out there and do it. He works on the circumstances to equip, but he also works inside of you. Philippians 1.6 echoes the same point, that God began a good work in you. And because he began a good work, we can be confident that he will finish what he started inside of you. He's going to take you from the little baby, maybe the little size of my little granddaughter here today, and then he's going to grow you into a mature man, into a mature woman. You're going to be, uh, you're going to be mature in Christ. It is so beautiful that God is working with you. And look at the exact words. He says, working in each of us, that which is pleasing in his sight. And that's because you're connected to Jesus. Colossians 3 explains it very well when he says, now that we have been raised with Christ, seek those things that are above. Set your affection on things that are beautiful, lovely, just, pure, and honest. See, we're different creatures. Folks, if you've been in the presence of God today, you shouldn't just go away and say, eh, no big deal, nothing matters. No, you can have a great big heart for those who are suffering in the Ukraine. You can have great big anger about people who are deceiving you or tricking you. There's a lot of things going on in this world. But what has God put you here to do? I'm going to pick on my brother again here because uh, we've been praying for one part of the body called a liver. And uh, there's one guy that I'm praying by May 21 that he gets that replacement liver. And uh, his name is Matt. 
and I, I, some of you have been praying for him. I'm looking to be able to rejoice. I have to tell you, my faith is a little bit shattering. I don't really like to give dates, but I wanted to pray earnestly and ask you all to pray that God would provide. But, but when you get a body part like a liver, or you get a body part like a finger, or a body part like a leg, how important is it? It's very important. And God has placed in the body each one of us into his body. He is the head, and we're just parts of the body. Are any parts more important than other parts? It's a trick question. Some are more, some seem to be more important. Some seem to have a greater responsibility. But all the parts are important. You can be a thumb or you can be a finger or you can be a kneecap. All those things are important. Just take one away. Then you'll know how important it is. But God says that he's put you into his body. He's, he's given you and he's provided for you so that you have something for him to be doing. What is it that God put you in this world to be doing? How are you working within the church to be able to accomplish those purposes? If you're just an outsider, just a visitor, I want to challenge you to draw near to him. And God will make your path clear. It's wonderful when you realize that God is at peace. When we have that benediction at the end, you don't have to worry that he's coming after you. It's not like he's putting Mueller on there to do some kind of a, a, of a task force to be able to uncover all of your bad deeds. No, he's at peace because the great shepherd of the sheep has brought all the sheep into the fold. And if you're in Christ, there is no more condemnation. Do you know Christ? Do you see what he did on Calvary's cross? Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that the gospel is for us. We thank you that we can see into the heart of God today. The author of Hebrews tells us how great it is that this blood of the covenant has been spilt. The Father has seen the blood, and he can pass over us now. And that's why he can work with us that which is well-pleasing. He can provide, he can equip, and he can indwell. Oh, Lord, I pray that you will do that with each person in this room today. I pray that we might respond to whatever the master leads us to do. I pray that we might be into the word this Resurrection Sunday because we've been raised with Christ. May our affections reflect the reflections of God's working in us. I pray this in Jesus' name.